Welcome everyone to the eighth episode of Linus, the origin story. My name is Sean Hall, director of programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, over the course of this series, we have been covering everything from Team Linus to the female engagement teams to the cultural support teams. Our goal is to shed light on this unexplored history. Joining me again are filmmaker and writer Daria Summers and Army veteran Shannon Morgan. In 2008, Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. You can find Lioness, the documentary, on Apple TV and Amazon Prime. Please look it up. And Rejoining us uh, is Shannon Morgan. So excited to have you back, Shannon. Uh, you were a member of uh, the original group of Lioness soldiers. Uh, you were an army mechanic from Mena, Arkansas, and served in Ramadi from 2003 to 2004. And during the 2004 Battle of Ramadi, you were one of a group of army Lioness soldiers attached to the two four Marines during the house-to-house -house searches in some of the fiercest fighting of the Iraq War. Uh, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us again. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, however you can. Please get the word out about the Lioness Origin Story podcast. Uh, we've been so humbled by the support that we have seen so far. Um, thank you again. Uh, I'm going to hand it off here to Daria and Shannon to introduce our special guest for this episode. Thank you so much. Take it away, Daria. Oh, it's great to be back. And I just want to say that I know uh, to our listeners, I know it's been a few, more than a few weeks since our last episode, but I think that um, everyone will find the, work, the wait was more than worth it. Um, first, I'm glad to have Shannon Morgan back with us, um, our co-host and original and, and original Lioness vet. And her timing couldn't have been better because while Shannon was one of the first women to serve as a Lioness in Iraq in 2003, our guest today, who we're thrilled to have, was a platoon commander for female engagement teams in Afghanistan uh, which were a direct uh, outgrowth of what started with the Linus program. And that guest is Colleen Farrell. She served in the United States Marine Corps from 2008 to 2012. Originally from New Jersey, she was a classics major at Haverford College in Pennsylvania, which I love. Um, having always been interested in military, in the military is a meaningful way to serve her country. Colleen, after graduating in 2008, joined the Marines and was commissioned as a Marine Corps officer through the Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia. In 2009, she was assigned the Military Occupational Specialty of Air Support Control Officer. That same year, Colleen joined the Marine Corps PENTAC-2, or Female Engagement Team Program. A first lieutenant, she deployed to Afghanistan's Helmand Province from 2010 to 2011 as an FET platoon commander. In 2012, while still on active duty, having returned from Afghanistan, Colleen became one of four plaintiffs in an ACLU lawsuit challenging the combat, uh, the DOD's combat exclusion policy. The following year, Secretary Leon Panetta rescinded the policy require, and required the military to begin implementing change. In 2013, Colleen was named to Foreign Policy's Global Thinker List for advancing gender equity across the armed services and enabling women to hold critical combat roles for career advancement in the military. And that's 
a very important point. Today, she is a project manager and scrum master for Everyday Health Group, uh, which includes the world's leading digital parenting resources platform. In addition, she's on the board of directors of the Sahar Foundation, which works to increase education for Afghan girls. Colleen currently lives in Connecticut with her husband and three-year-old daughter, and we just want to say welcome. And uh, I really just want to dive right in. So Colleen, uh, just take us to the moment. You've graduated from college. You're a classics major, um, and you decided, how did that decision really emerge? I'm going to join the Marines. Sure. Well, thank you for that uh, wonderful intro, and thank you, Sean, Daria, and Shannon, for welcoming me. It's so great to be here and speak with you all. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, I was in the Marine Corps from 2008 to 2012. Um, I was an athlete through high school and college and really just loved to challenge myself physically. And I wanted to continue to be challenged physically in my role after college. And that was essentially the main reason I joined the Marine Corps. Um, it seemed to be the hardest of all the services. And it really focused on intangible values like courage and teamwork and discipline and esprit de corps that you really get from being part of, you know, a collegiate athletic team. Um, growing up with a Quaker ed education uh, from age four all the way through college, service to my community, my country, and essentially the world has really been ingrained in me since my early childhood days. And military service just always seemed like the type of service that spoke to me the most. Um, there's an adage in Quakerism that is, let your life speak, meaning let your lives reflect your values. And then also more importantly, as you let your life speak, make sure you are helping the lives of others to speak. And it was really that sense of service and commitment that Quakerism instilled in me to be a part of something bigger that appealed to me and encouraged me to join the Marine Corps. I love that. And uh, it's not, um, I'll, I'll just say that that's a, that's a theme and that is not always um, focused on enough um, but I have heard it, that that idea of service uh, mentioned when actually when we've talked to people um, who worked with it, who, women who joined the cultural support teams. And I think that it makes, you know, it, it's such a good point to make and it makes a big difference. Um, so moving along, so you, you had your MOS, you were all, uh, you know, set up as um, an air support control officer. At what point, just like that moment when you heard, oh, there's a program about female engagement teams, I might be interested in that. Talk to us about that. Sure, so I had just gotten to my first duty station, which was Camp Pendleton, California, when the opportunity arose. Um, our command's operations executive officer, who was my friend, and often would see a lot of these billets come in, um, just came up to me and said, hey, this new team is being formed. Are you interested? I hadn't heard about the Lioness previously, the Lioness program. I had not heard about this female engagement team. I really hadn't heard about women being in combat or helping contribute to that mission in any way before then. Um, but I jumped at the chance. It was an opportunity to lead Marines, to work with the infantry, to help the Afghan population. It was just really a once in a lifetime chance to fight the war at the tip of the spear. And that's um, 
you know, that's a really crucial aspect of being in the Marine Corps. You know, most Marines want to fight at the tip of the spear. They want to, you know, be contributing the most of their capabilities to the mission. And so it was a very quick turnaround. Um, I think, you know, I had maybe a day or two to make the decision and to submit my name. Um, but yeah, I jumped at the opportunity and then um, quickly joined the team afterwards. When you, to say join, did you have to apply or was it a matter of signing up? So I did apply, you submitted a package um, and that included just your background, you know, your physical fitness, um, letters of recommendation. They were really seeking out Marines and sailors of quote unquote, the highest caliber, um, you know, who have the experience, maturity and ability to accomplish these really difficult tasks under challenging circumstances. So it was a selection process. Um, unfortunately, I was selected. That's great. And um, I would just mention that's unlike um, the Shannon, your selection process was a bit more casual, right? Wasn't it more like who wants to go? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, first sergeant come up and pretty much voluntold a few of us. <laughs> So yeah, it was. Uh, fortunately, by the time Colin, it seems like it was a somewhat more together and organized, um, and and not sort of boots on the ground, but being um, organized back um, back home. Um, so how did that how did that unfold? I mean, at one point you you left your MOS right, and you joined the program, and then you had to undergo training. Can you talk about how that unfolded? Sure. And I can also maybe take a little bit of a step back and talk about, you know, why this team was um, implemented, why they were asking for folks to join this team and why this team was going to deploy. So it was. Oh, that's great. Yeah. As you mentioned um, in previous podcasts, this was the first time the Marine Corps was standing up a designated team to function in this role. Before this, the Marine Corps would pick Marines out of their day job, you know, in a, in a very ad hoc manner and then send them outside the wire to conduct searching missions, really with no sense of training. And so this FET team was um, a company of 40 Marines uh, broken down into two platoons. So I was the platoon commander for one of those platoons. And then each team would then be attached to an infantry battalion. So smaller teams of two to three Marines that would be attached to a battalion of about 400 infantry Marines. And the mission of the female engagement team was to essentially build trust with the Afghans. So due to the strict cultural customs in Afghanistan, um, male Marines were not able to talk to Afghan women. So in terms of information, the Marine Corps was not able to engage with over 50% of the population. And that contributed to a huge gap in our strategic capability in terms of figuring out how do we serve the population. So that's really where the FET and then I'll, I'll say FET from now on, you know, female engagement team. So that's really where the FET came in. We helped fill this gap by going out into villages and communities every single day, talking with people, building relationships, and then also subsequently implementing civil development projects like hosting medical clinics and rebuilding schools. So yeah, I was selected to be a platoon leader, or sorry, a platoon commander. And that's essentially the person responsible for everything the platoon does. It's like the officer of the platoon, setting the leadership philosophy of the platoon, training, administration, making sure you know the welfare of all the Marines is taken care of, 
um, and really making sure we're succeeding in our mission. Um, in terms of the training. Oh, I, no, I just, I just wanted to add, so maybe before we get to the training, um, because you were, you started to mention the different things that were expected, whether it was medical or, you know, what are the uh, sort of the needs of the women and maybe what intel, but what specialties did they draw, did the Marines draw into the uh, FETs? Sure. So um, every FET team member came from a different background. Like it was an ex extremely diverse team. We have logistics Marines, Marines from communication, from aviation, armorers, cooks, basically every MOS was represented in these, this group of 40 Marines. And they were all Marines who had volunteered for this. And then also had, you know, the experience, the maturity, um, the physical fitness to be on a team like this. We also did have I, if I remember correctly, two Marines on our team who had served as lionesses as part of the Marine Corps program in Iraq. And then our um, battalion commander also had served as one of those ad hoc FETs I had mentioned previously. She was a logistics officer and on her previous deployment would, would operate as kind of an ad hoc um, female engagement team. No, that's great. I think, and so so now that we have an understanding of that, but yeah, please do go on to talking about the training. Sure. So we joined a training command and we had three months of training at Camp Pendleton, uh, California, with one major exercise at 29 Palms, California. And really the training revolved around the goal of being able to contribute in a variety of scenarios and situations. So our training consisted of, you know, weapons training, language classes. Um, we had significant combat medical training, cross-cultural negotiation skills, working with interpreters, tactical questioning, immediate action drills. We really wanted the team members to be, to contribute as an effective member of a patrol, like an infantry patrol, because they would be going out multiple times a day on these patrols. Um, and so they were expected to have that level of knowledge to be effective. And even, you know, we had training that went as far as like being an authorized pay agent, which meant some type of financial training and the requirements around that to be able to give out micro grants to women to help support businesses um, in country. So our training really runs the gamut of um, anything that we might be expected to do while we're in country and to really contribute as, as a force multiplier for these infantry battalions. Um, that's, can I just add that the way you're describing that is in such detail in terms of all the capabilities, the service capabilities you you brought to it, it's almost like it was a, a kind of a USAID package. Yeah, and we were, you know, really trained to work with the provincial reconstruction teams and also our civil affairs teams. We worked closely hand in hand with those teams. So, um, and was the, did you get all the training that you needed at Camp Pendleton or at uh, 29 Palms? So I would say we were almost as prepared as we could be. Um, I mentioned that we had a week long exercise out in 29 Palms and every infantry battalion goes through this exercise before they deploy. Um, and it's a progressive exercise in that each week, the scenarios build upon each other. 
our FET teams were brought into the training towards the very end, meaning we had missed the first three weeks. Um, and we were brought in, you know, kind of in the, in the fourth week. Um, and that was when we were included in the training. Additionally, the training scenarios weren't really geared for including our female engagement teams within the operation. And it just seemed like a, you know, it was kind of a wasted opportunity for our FET teams to train for those broad scenarios that they would face once deployed. And not in addition to kind of missing out on this month long training series, it was also a lost opportunity to liaise with the units that we would be attached to prior to deployment. So this meant that um, for the vast majority of the female engagement team Marines, they met their units and learned their operational and tactical procedures when they were in country at their patrol bases um, in Afghanistan. And so it was really a missed opportunity, one, to build relationships with those battalions, and then also just to really get the full gamut to be truly prepared to head into combat. I'm just <clears throat> assuming some of that had to do with uh, just that this was all new and, and the training was really meant for what, you know, they were referred to as, you know, people who were officially going into combat and you technically weren't included in that yet. Yes, I mean, I can't, I honestly can't say what the, um, what the background is, um, I can only say that, you know, we weren't really included until, until over midway through the training. Um, and so. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you got what you did. Um, the, so then if we move on to, so your uh, deployment, so it's 2010, right? You are in Afghanistan. What's the state of things? And what's the, what's the mission of the Marines in Helmand province? And how, how does the FET fit into that? Sure. So the overall mission of the Marine Corps was counterinsurgency operations. So that's, you know, securing the region, serving the population, living among the community and helping Afghans build accountable governance. Um, it was very interesting. I had three different districts where my Marines were posted across the battle space, and they really ran the gamut of their the overall security situation so i had a team that was in a district that was relatively safe um, the afghan people trusted us and worked with us to help rebuild rebuild their community on the opposite side i had three teams in an area that was essentially one of the worst places from a security standpoint at that time and then i had two teams like straddling that spectrum so the goal of the fed and bringing in the fed was again to build that trust and confidence. Um, we really provided a connection and a support to that portion of the community, so women and children, but also men, um, to build that trust and confidence for the counterinsurgency operations. So a lot of our work was focused on building out the battalion commander strategy, influencing the decisions that the infantry battalions would be making. Um, the female engagement team sent a strong signal of like peaceful engagement to the villages. Um, I think there was one, if I remember one quote of 
you know, a village elder saying, your men come to fight, but we know the women are here to help. So it was just mostly our presence that really helped um, build that trust and confidence between the Marine Corps and the Afghans. And would you say that the, um, I have a couple of questions here. Would you say that the Afghan women, um, you know, were, were kind of like once they figured out who you were and what you were there for, that they, you know, they uh, they welcomed your presence? I would say that really varied district to district, village to village, house to house. Like it, it was really varied for sure um, between families. Um, there are different tribal affiliations um, in a lot of the areas we were in. And additionally, many families were afraid of retribution for speaking with us and were rightfully scared um, of being seen talking with us. So that was definitely a significant challenge to overcome. On the other hand, we did have um, many families and midwives who we had very strong bonds with and we were able to develop very positive relationships with. So just getting back to the basics. So in a, in a female engagement team, like you would send out a team or you would be in a team that would go out, say, for, for, I don't know, 45 days at a time around that. How many, are there six in a team? Six, what makes up an FET team? Sure, so each team was two Marines, um, and some teams had a Navy corpsman, and some teams also had an interpreter. And so each of those teams of two to three Marines would be stationed or posted with an infantry battalion, which is about 400 Marines. And they would work with that battalion to go out on patrols where they were strategically needed. And so as an FET section leader, were you, um, like, was this planned out in advance or was it a weekly? I was, I'm trying to get a sense of how you knew sort of what was happening. Was it, I mean, obviously things were fluid um, it was a kinetic situation, but were you planning things out in advance by a week or two weeks or how did that evolve? Sure. So as the platoon commander, my responsibility was one to act as a regimental liaison, which is the regiment is the um, organizational unit above battalion. So I would be on my base, which was um, Camp Dalaram. And I would be essentially liaising with the regiment and ensuring that the teams were supporting that regimental commander's uh, mission. At the same time, I would also go out and visit all of my teams um, and check in to see how they were doing, ask how I could support them from the regimental level. I was checking in almost daily with my team leaders um, but that said, it was very difficult because of the communication limitations, you know, in the battle space, I often was not able to actually speak with them or communicate with them via email. And they had really great latitude in running their, their operations and making decisions on the ground. I had 
absolute complete trust and confidence in my squad leaders to make those hard decisions. And it was really their goal to liaise with the battalion commanders to figure out how the FET could support those battalion commanders. So just to give our listeners um, a kind of a day by, you know, or sort of very specific idea, what is there, uh, is there a mission or an experience that you could describe one that worked out really well that was, you know, that surprised you or the people who were in it, you know, in a positive way? And was there one that, wow, that was the diciest thing we've been in? You just give us, um, maybe describe the spectrum. I would say, I think one of the more memorable missions or projects I was involved with um, involved myself and my staff sergeant, in addition to our, you know, platoon commander responsibilities and going out to visit all of our teams um, and supervising their activities, we also went out um, outside the wire to work in the village of Dalaram. So that was just right outside of our base. And through talking with women there, we were able to host, uh, you know, essentially a women's town hall in Dalaram. And we had uh, probably 20 women come to that. And it was at the midwife's house, um, who they were all very familiar with. And we were able to listen and voice, hear, hear their concerns that were voiced about the need for a secure girls' school in the area. Uh, previously, the school had been bombed um, and it was no longer functioning. And so through that engagement, uh, we were able to then secure funding from the district governor to build this school for girls. Um, and so that was kind of a project that was a very special project to be a part of and that the direct engagement of hosting this town hall uh, contributed to that civil development project. Wow, so that was you, the FET team, working with the civil operations? Correct, yes. And I'm just assuming that the, the people who were working within the civil op operations were probably mostly male? Um, I would say that's not necessarily the case. Um, civil okay. civil affairs um, did have uh, both ma male and female Marines working on that, uh, working for them. Okay, so it was an example of a, a excellent collaboration in making that happen. Yeah, and we, you know, we worked with um, all of our teams really worked closely with civil affairs. Um, and then also civil affairs worked closely with the provincial reconstruction teams um, just to help advance these uh, larger civil development projects. Wow, that sounds amazing. And um, and so a school, the school was rebuilt and then was functioning? So during my uh, deployment, I don't think we were there long enough to have it rebuilt, but we did were able to secure that funding from the district governor to be to contribute towards that skill or that school. I mean, really talk about social and community engagement. 
in the needs of the, of the communities. But I think that this the civil affairs program really, um, what, what I like about it is really it emphasizes completing the mission in the sense of that po the positive experience. Was there a, a point at which um, when you were out in the field where after a certain amount of time, the, um, the infantry units that you were with started to uh, understand that the value added, not that they didn't think you were gonna be value added, but since it was all new that they, everyone learned about it in action. Yeah, definitely. So I will say the, the response of the battalions also varied um, from battalion to battalion. And it was actually, you know, a very unique phenomenon where I felt that the battalions that were operating in less secure um, areas and that were involved in more of the fighting, they actually seemed more open and um, more inclined to use the female engagement teams. I don't know. I'm not sure why, possibly because, you know, they they're trying to use everything at their disposal to accomplish their mission. And that involves being creative and uh, using force multipliers like the female engagement team. Um, and so those teams really um, formed tight bonds. And by the end of the deployment, they were not only referring to their Marines as brothers, but you know, uh, also a brotherhood and a sisterhood and really including those Marines in, in the ethos of the battalion. So that's great because in a way what you're saying is once people were there together operating and contributing and um, you know, they, you know, they created a set of relationships that allowed the mission to be accomplished. Yeah, and there were also um, certain instances where the our female engagement team was able to uh, learn of information from male Afghans um, that helped contribute to the security of the communities. So, for example, where weapons caches would be, um, and the Afghans had not we're not comfortable speaking to the male Marines, but we're actually more comfortable sharing that information with the female engagement team members. And so it was definitely a benefit for those battalions to use the female engagement teams to access that information. That's so interesting that you say that because um, I did hear that from also um, in, in an instance where someone was working in a cultural support team and just talking about how sometimes the, and, and she was in Afghanistan and how some, in terms of the relationships that they were developing, sometimes the Afghan men actually, it wasn't just the women, but the Afghan men were more comfortable speaking to women, Marines. That must've been extremely um, helpful. I'd like to move on and, and, and talk to you about the, um, because it's, it's certainly what we all read. I mean, there's a big article in the New York Times. I really remember it was like 2010 or maybe 2011 around there, but it was a headline about the female engagement teams. And it was about how they had to return every 45 days or a commander, some kind of or big wig would come to visit the main base and they would pull all the women back. 
and I guess, and you've mentioned, I believe, the returning to base every 45 days, um, not necessarily, didn't necessarily make sense, but it was kind of trying to adhere to, I guess, some degree of the combat exclusion policy. Can you explain that a little more? Sure. So um, for my specific team, every 45 days, uh, the entire team had to return to Camp Leatherneck, which is the main, main Marine Corps base in Afghanistan, in order to conduct uh, what we had called reset training. And so this essentially ensured that the battalions would be complying with the regulation of the combat exclusion policy that the female engagement team would not physically quote unquote, co-locate and remain with the direct crowned combat units. Um, and so this policy of returning every 45 days um, was a workaround and um, it was used to circumvent that part of the combat exclusion policy. Because of the way the terrain was essentially laid out, Oftentimes, we would return to Camp Leatherneck and stay for about three to five days just due to flight operations and the distance that we had to travel. And it meant that our Marines could not contribute to their battalion's mission for those five days, for, for a week. And that disrupted operations, effectively taking them out of the fight for, for no reason. I will say um, we did try to make the most of it. So we used that time. Uh, to regroup, to discuss after action reports, to conduct further training. It was beneficial for our teams to reunite with each other and kind of talk about each of their experiences within their own area of operations and to kind of problem solve, say, you know, I'm experiencing this. Have you experienced that? And, you know, how would you go about solving this issue I'm facing? So we did make the most of it. Um, but at the same point, or at the same time, it took my Marines out of the fight. Battalion commanders had to reschedule their own operations because of this reset. And the Marines had to take convoys or flights across you know, dangerous territory just to meet this policy. Right, right. And yet, um, it sounds like you made the most of it by doing that kind of uh, regrouping and um, a kind of a boots on the ground sort of check in and 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 sort of sharing of information that uh, just kept everyone sharp in terms of what 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 experiences everybody was having. Um, but without going into any detail, um, can you just? And just as a general matter, so I don't want any personal stories or anything like that, but just as a general matter, during the course of the time that you were there, were there incidences where your teams, some of the vets were out with their units and there were, it was, there was combat action? Yes. Yeah, so the majority of my teams were awarded combat action ribbons. And that means that you are. Um, in direct ground combat, either through exposure to IEDs or through firefights. And so the majority of my teams were awarded that. Um, as I mentioned, many of my teams were in uh, very uh, dangerous territory, a territory that was like not secure. 
and that there was constant fighting. Right. And was there um, a point, I mean, to me, listening to you and um, Shannon, you jump in here too, because you have actual experience. <laughs> Certainly, I have no experience other than um, sort of listening and, 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 and studying and recording, but um, that despite the fact that um, at 29 Palms, you, you got a week of the four week training program, um, but that, you know, it, it speaks to the quality of the women or just the Marines without even specifying the gender that you had under you, um, that they were able to just make it work. I, I think it speaks to the adaptability of uh, US military in general, um, personally. Um, I think we're able to take our failures and turn them into triumphs. Um, and through the right training, um, which it was still in its infancy, it had just been created when I was there, um, through the right training, we're able to accomplish the mission, turns out. Right, and, and some of that training was like on-the-job training. Correct. Yeah, but no, I was just wondering, Shannon, how, how some of what sort of calling stories or uh, her, you know, the specifics about having the training, maybe not enough, but or were coming in after 45 days and, and sort of using that time instead of as, as a negative, turning it into a positive and, and making it a time to like sort of strengthen just the ideas of what people could learn from each other or the mission. I mean, it, it sounds, it resonates to some extent with what you know, the, you, the early group of lioness women went through. Absolutely. And um, throughout the progression, you know, it seems like uh, the Marines took their training and put it to the, to the best use possible and created their own teams. Um, it's, it's always a uh, co-counterpart effort. So um, hats off to them. Absolutely. And was there, um, just as we, as we, um, uh, I mean, you've given a really great arc about uh, the experiences um, over there. So first one, I'd just like to say, is there anything that you would like to go on sort of the record of saying, just maybe answer a question that I um, am overlooking or not asking just about, you know, a critical experience that would help people understand the FETs or have we covered it? Sure. I mean, I can also give some more examples about some of the civil development projects that they worked on. Um, I think we especially had a had a very successful uh, deployment. I'm not sure. I think the female engagement team that was before us, they often um, they could not go outside the wire because of uh, limitations that I believe Congress had put on them. They found out halfway through their deployment um, and Marine Corps leaders essentially pulled them back. And so I think we had a little bit of a different experience in terms of our deployment um, and being successful and really being able to fully carry out our mission uh, during the months that we were there. So I can talk a little bit about that. 
Um, but yeah, everything else, I, I feel like you've covered covered it pretty well. Well, yeah, why don't you give us, um, because I do want to get to uh, how how everything unfolded when you returned home, but yeah, why don't you give us one more example of, uh, you know, outreach to the community? Sure. So I think one of the really interesting uh, projects that my Marines developed were was a women's vocational center uh, that taught uh, women to quilt. So other Afghan women uh, taught women to quilt. And we were able to support this um, through our microgrant programs uh, and help women start their own businesses. And so this provided legitimate income for the families um, and also provided women a safe place to gather. Um, and it was just a very innovative and very uh, interesting social impact program that the uh, my one fat team uh, led. Yeah, so that yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the whole idea is that right, do these kinds of programs helped uh, sort of secure communities because they were um, made them. And you tell me if I'm getting this right, because I might not be, but made them less vulnerable to sort of the negative influences of, uh, I guess, the Taliban forces in the area. Yes, that's exactly right. Awesome. And by the end of your um, deployment there, were your, do you think that the command above you understood what you had accomplished? Re I mean, recognize the value? Yes, definitely. Um, we had, you know, very positive relationships. Um, I think I will always remember um, the regimental commander that I served under. Um, he came in halfway through my deployment, so he relieved the previous command. And within the first few days of him getting on the ground and, you know, meeting all of his staff, uh, he met with the female engagement team and was very interested in learning about our capabilities, what we had done. Um, and it just was a sign of such respect. Um, and he is now the commandant of the Marine Corps. <laughs> so it's great to see, um, you know, that kind of leadership carrying on in the Marine Corps now. Uh, but it just, um, you know, we, I felt like we had the respect of a lot of our battalion commanders and regimental commanders for what we were able to achieve. Um, that's fantastic. And I know we're on a time limitation. So I just, uh, I feel compelled to sort of move on. And even though I could spend another hour talking to you, but um, I mean, we all, but um, given that you have a hard out, I just want to, so you returned home after your seven month deployment. And I know that, you know, I, I understand that like you had, whereas a traditional, the military, the Marine combat unit had more time to transition once they were back, they weren't disbanded. You had like three days, you, your, the FETs had three days and you were um, kind of disbanded, which was, you know, I mean, Shannon can relate to that as being very tough. Um, but can you can you speak about that? But then I I want would love to understand 
at, in the in the sort of as the experience seeped in, how that led to your participation in the ACLU lawsuit against DOD? Sure. So as you mentioned, um, the team was disbanded within three days and everyone returned to their prior units um, who had not deployed with us. And essentially having broken up so quickly, it was really difficult to ensure that my Marines received the appropriate care for their combat experiences. That's everything from mental health to recognition for their actions. Um, you know, that's a, that's a really key component of being an officer and making sure your Marines are taken care of and that they're receiving proper post post deployment care. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very, very difficult to, to make sure that they, that they had that. We didn't get R and R, which is rest and recuper recuperation. We did not get that. And. It was also really difficult to make sure that my Marines received combat action ribbons. So it just took a lot longer and it was much harder to push through the bureaucracy um, because I think as you've mentioned in previous podcasts, you know, it doesn't show that you're on the female engagement team on your record. It's not an MOS. Um, and so it was really difficult for them to receive recognition and make sure that this was reflected on their record for promotions. And, and this put them at a disadvantage. Right, and, and I mean, actually I have heard um, some women who were pulled out of their MOS, whether it was for lioness or even one Marine as a Marine searcher, um, but this was back in 2004 and, and with cultural support team members, and then they get dropped back in and their MOS is like, it's like their other job. It's like, you know, women always having two jobs. Um, and you didn't, that career was continuing, that MOS was continuing, but you didn't, the credit didn't necessarily transfer. Correct, yeah. So how did that, um, how did, how did the, what was happening and how did the uh, lawsuit kind of, how did you connect with that? Sure. So my commanding officer from the female engagement team um, approached me and asked me if I was interested in joining the lawsuit. Um, I was still on active duty uh, at the time it came up. And so I really had to think through, you know, what that meant, what the implications were. But my initial instinct was yes, um, just that I needed to do the right thing. My obligations as an officer was to use my voice to kind of you know, get rid of this policy that was, you know, harming my Marines and then also harming the Marine Corps capability. We were there to fill a gap. We were a force multiplier. Um, and I really believed in that um, and believed in the necessity of this team and having uh, female Marines as part of the infantry from a, from a strategic standpoint. And so I felt like it was my obligation as a leader of Marines um, to join. And um, yeah, I had a conversation with the ACLU and then um, essentially made the decision to join the lawsuit. And um, in once you did that, was how did that go over? And do you mean, I guess, do you mean with my command or with? Um... Let me put it to you this way. Given that, I mean, I think 
and, and this is what we even found out, you know, talking to um, people talking about, you know, what the Lioness program early on, and, you know, there was just this disconnect in terms the commanders, you, you know, in the services didn't want to not be able to use, I mean, the women soldiers or the Marines, so women who they had, they were just part of the force and they just wanted to be able to use them as, you know, for what the best ways they could. And, you know, a lot of them found the combat exclusion policy irritating. So in the sense that you were trying to rectify something that had already <laughs> become a very inconvenient truth in a kind of way, um, did they were, but you're, but on the other hand, you're still, you're suing, right? DOD. Did they think of that as, you know, we're glad you're doing that? Or was there like, you know, no, how can you sue DOD? Sure. So, I mean, once I returned, I was really back within my previous MOS community. So folks who had not been in combat, who had not experienced what we experienced during our deployment. And um, I did feel like just uh, personally, I lost a lot of the friends that I had. I think uh, folks just did not understand it. Um, except for those that I had on the FET who had gone through this experience, they truly understood it. Um, and there were, there were many female engagement team members who wanted to join, but from a career perspective knew that it would be, um, extremely detrimental to their career and they wanted to stay in and who were unable to join the lawsuit because of that. Um, so it was, it was difficult. Um, I did get, you know, a lot of pushback from, um, friends and, uh, the, my command that I was in, um, and so that was a, it was a challenging time, but, you know, ultimately I was very um, true to my conviction and felt like it was the, the right choice for me. And really uh, it turned out well. I mean, it, it didn't take long. Um, and I just want to say, and I know that Shannon feels the same, that, you know, it was, that was really heroic because uh, you really, um, yeah, it, it it would never have changed unless the women who affiliated themselves with the lawsuit didn't join and stand up. So, you know, you, you, this amazing and historic um, choice that you made. Um, and I just want to, um, I, when we were showing, um, screening lioness which it came out in 2008 and so by the time we were screening we did a lot of screenings of the film and 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 shannon you can speak to this the film um there was a lot of footage of that that showed you know shannon and the early lionesses because they were at, uh essentially they went out with the marines and shannon was the saw gunner um you know it showed that this policy wasn't I mean, it wouldn't hold over there. There was a disconnect. But um, but when I screened the film, a lot of people would say, well, why, you know, what's the importance? Like, why do you want women? It's bad enough that men are in combat. Why do you want women to be in combat? But I love the point about the lawsuit being, it's really, that's not really what it's about. It's about women having the same chances to, career, have, have the same career ascent as men in who are in the services. 
Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, the opportunity to serve your country is a right of our citizenship of the United States. And so until that opportunity is equal on a gender neutral basis, women will continue to be considered less than you know, second class citizens. And so um, you're exactly right in in that regard um, that it's more than it's more than um, just having women uh, be able to be in combat. It's about, you know, a, it's a civil rights issue um, and it's a right of our country. I think it's also important to mention um, that literally, Pauline, that coincides with, um, you know, some of the things we went through in the early stages of returning, like me literally being called a liar at the VA because they're like negative. There are no females in frontline combat. <clears throat> and it's hard to be a female in the military period, but then you have to be able to separate yourself somehow because in an essence, it feels like you're losing the ground that you gained um, sometime with um, with your male counterparts. I know like a lot of, of males that I worked with, um, some of them never even left the wire. So they would treat me differently when I came back and, and you could tell, you know, I would be pushed to the side. I mean, these are all challenges as a female that we have to overcome. And I just don't understand if it's too easy to go ahead and attach that to our DD 214. Why would you not? So we wouldn't have to get the backlash that we do get for just being females and trying to do the right thing. It's hard to do that. Shannon, you make a really, I mean, you really make a good point. And I just, I, I, what I love is, um, and I'm going to love listening back to this program because you are, Shannon's experience is like one of the one of the first over there to confront this issue, sort of the disconnect between policy in Washington and boots on the ground. And then, um, Colleen, you had the uh, amazing experience, sort of on the on the far end, to um, be out with the FET teams, more organized, sort of certainly an outgrowth or an evolution of what maybe started out as or what started out as the Lioness program. And then you took the additional step, which was just so courageous to join the lawsuit. And that really, I mean, that kickstarted a lot of change that's still going on, but it wouldn't have happened if you and the other three women didn't join that lawsuit. So I know you have to go, but I wanted to just say that and, 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 you know, thank you for not only your service, but your courage in doing that. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to speak with you, Daria and Shannon, and also just for recording this podcast and creating this historical record of women's contributions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've learned so much from your previous podcasts, um, things that I didn't know about this history. And so I'm just so grateful um, to be on this and to share the story of the female engagement team, 10 Tech 2 And I'm just very grateful to you uh, for hosting these conversations. It was great well, meeting you, Colin. You meet you anyways. Um, thank you for, for having the courage to, to stand alone. Um, you have my respect for sure. I'm, I'm just honored and I'll just 
and I and I know Sean is too, but I'll say on behalf of uh, the Veterans Breakfast Club, which is really, uh, again, it's just a nonprofit where we're just storytelling for veterans. Um, this is, I just appreciate them and thank them so much because they've created this space and allowed me and Shannon to do this podcast to kind of create this arc. And I know that women broke barriers and served in other capacities outside the arc of the lioness, the marine searchers, marine lioness, female engagement teams and cultural support teams. And hopefully we'll get to them, but this is a very important arc. And again, Pauline, you're our first FET member that I could get down on the podcast. And we are so thankful because you've been our missing link. <laughs> now we have it. So thank you so much. And maybe another time you could come back and, and talk to us more about the important work you're doing uh, today. I know you work with uh, veterans and on the Sahar Foundation, but we'll save that for another time. Sounds great. <laughs> Have All a good right. day, Colleen. Thank you both. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Colleen. Uh, right now, I would like to hear Shannon. Anything more you have to say? I think I think that seeing the continuation of the Lioness program and seeing where it's gone and um, them improving on, improving on it um, in every turn. I mean, it couldn't be better. Uh, it just goes to show the the strength and capabilities of women continue and it doesn't matter what branch we're in apparently. Right, and I also think that Colleen's ending point that it is the right of every citizen Absolutely. in this country to be able to serve, to fully serve and, and you know, the only qualification should be if you, if you can meet the standard of whatever the MOS is, you should be able to do it because that's equality. Absolutely. I do, I have to say that after making the film and learning about Lioness and making the film and we thought we were telling the story, we got the film out in 2008. Um, Cause Sean, it's just so interesting to me um, and all the work we did, remember Shannon up on Capitol Hill in 2009, that yes. at the time, know it you like you who could have known but out of that you know and it's not just and I'm not saying out of our work but I think there was a whole awareness building so that by the time in 2012 when women like Colleen and the others brought the lawsuit you know we all fed into that oh hands down we laid the groundwork for sure I mean, it's just kind of, it, it's amazing to me. I mean, I did, all I did was help tell a story, but all of you coming up and testifying and, and, you know, the press and getting people to talk about it and others who had equally, you know, amazing stories about what they did, but it all brought, and then, and so hopefully, um, you know, we're going to continue with this in a previous podcast and hopefully talk to some of the other women who are part of that lawsuit and the lawyer who helped, who brought it. So that's coming up. Sounds good to me, Daria. Well, I've got to run, you guys. Um, thank you for having okay. me. Thank you, All Shannon. Right. Well, 
Yeah, thank you, Shannon. And to our audience, please like, share, subscribe, uh, ring the bell on YouTube. You can find uh, the, the Lioness Origin Story podcast there on YouTube to listen to as well. We hope that you're enjoying this series. Uh, we have thought that this was going to be a part, sorry, an eight-part miniseries, but it seems like there are more than enough stories that continue to come to us that we may continue to produce this beyond. Love to hear from you. Uh, you can e reach out to me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any of your thoughts or comments or questions. Uh, happy to be able to send those on to Daria. Uh, Daria, another fantastic episode. Um, looking forward to more. Me too, Sean. And we'll we'll try to uh, uh, get out some more fantastic episodes in the next week or so. 